America was built on religious freedom. People want to get away from persecution. We don't bring people into religion by forcing religion upon them. It's a, it's a personal choice. And we keep taking personal choices away from people of America. We can't just base our rules and regulations and constitution on the Christian faith when America is for all faiths. I am a Christian woman, and I believe that our actions speak louder than our words. And when we put these actions to people, when we, when we treat people like this, taking rights away, abortion um, away, people's choices away, you know, we're persecuting people. For decades, the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention have been key players in the fight to restrict abortion access. Their objections hinge on specific religious beliefs about when life begins. But not everyone who opposes abortion is religious, and not everyone who is religious opposes abortion. My name is Rob from Parmel, Ohio, and in my religious view, the abortion bans are directly conflicting with my religious beliefs. I'm actually a member of the Satanic Temple, and one of our founding tenets is that the body is inviolable, subject only to your own will and no one else's. And I think the founding fathers would actually agree with us on that one. With Republicans trying to exert their express will as the only option, it's kind of a direct refutation of the founding principles of the nation. Thanks for that message, Rob. A synagogue in South Florida has sued the state over its abortion ban. The lawsuit was brought by Congregation Lador Vador in Boynton Beach, Florida. It argues that prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks violates the religious freedom of Jewish people, many of whom believe abortion is mandatory in some cases. Experts say this is just the beginning of what could be a wave of lawsuits from religious groups. But does religious freedom protect a right to an abortion? We'll discuss all that and more after the break. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is the rabbi, Barry Silver. He's also an attorney and a former Democratic member of the Florida House of Representatives. Rabbi Silver, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. And I'm glad to hear you start out with someone from the Satanic Temple because uh, he agrees with me on this point. So I guess that makes me as an attorney a devil's advocate. <laughs> Okay, that, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Satanic Temple's arg- argument because they've actually had that tested in court. But let's begin with your own your own congregation. Your synagogue has sued the state of Florida. They sued the state before Roe v. Wade was overturned. And we should note, uh, Florida all, law already allows for exceptions when the pregnant person's life is in danger. Can you lay out your argument for us? Sure. The law in Florida, HB 5, is similar to many other laws throughout the country. They're rather draconian, and they certainly differ significantly from Jewish law. And therefore, what they're doing is they're imposing the law 
of fundamentalist Christianity, which doesn't even reflect the views of all Christians, and trying to make that the law of the land. This law criminalizes Judaism, because in Judaism, we protect the, the life of the mother over the fetus. This law tends to protect the fetus over the life of the mother. Judaism says life begins at birth. The fundamentalist Christians and laws like this say that life begins at conception. This is a fundamental difference. And, and I would think that fundamentalist Christians who have co-opted the Jewish Bible, who elevated one of our boys to the Godhead, you would think they would be grateful enough to allow us to practice our religion in peace. But rather, there's a legal term for what they're doing. It's called chutzpah, to lecture the Jewish people who wrote the Bible on what the Bible actually means, and to lecture us, the Jewish people, on the sanctity of life. I think we get it. We don't need them telling us what to do, and we don't need them telling other Christians and Muslims and atheists what to do. This is an attempt to impose a theocratic tyranny on the rest of the country, and it's exactly what the founding fathers were afraid of when they enacted the First Amendment. This law, and others like it, is an attempt to put a huge crack in the wall of separation because they want to take us back to the bad old days when religion and government were fused and cause all types of horrors in Europe. Uh, there's a lot in what you just said. A couple, uh, just keep our listeners up to date. The good Jewish boy you were referring to, of course, was the Jesus of Nazareth. I had no idea chutzpah was a legal term. Um, <laughs> but let me read you an email from Jared, Gerald. Um, who says, I grew up Catholic with varying degrees of attachment to the church over the years. I still practice the faith in a progressive way. Our legislative body and Supreme Court have proven themselves woefully hypocritical in their decisions and are inadequate in even beginning to address ethical issues. To imagine five or six people deciding on when life begins is ludicrous at best, yet this is where the Supreme Court is heading. And so, I wanted to get at what you were talking about, the differing religious views of when life begins, which is odd to me as a legal subject because it can't be proven. What do you make of this legal argument over the beginning of life? Well, what can be proven is that the architects of this law are attempting to impose their views on everyone else. And that is a fundamental violation of the First Amendment. They're, they're violating the First Amendment in two ways. They're trying to establish fundamentalist Christianity as the law of the land, and they're also preventing the free exercise of Judaism and many other religions. So it, you don't have to know anything about theology at all to know that this is a clear-cut, blatant violation of the First Amendment in both respects. But I do want to speak to the Catholic uh, caller. I, I do want to allay any concerns that he has, because... What the fundamentalist today and the Catholic Church today is doing actually has no biblical precedent at all. They are, they are not following the mandates of the Bible, and they are not following the mandates of Jesus. They are creating their own new law, something that has never been heard of before. And let me explain why. In the Torah, there's not a word about banning abortion. No rules against it. And in Christian scripture, there's also no rules against it at all. And Jesus said, I came to change not a jot or a tittle of the old law, according to Christian scripture. What does that mean? That means both documents are pro-choice. Both documents left the choice up to the mother. You could say, well, maybe they never heard of abortion back then. Wrong. Surrounding cultures had laws outlawing abortion. 
but the people, the architects of the Torah and Christian scripture chose to stay out and leave that up to the woman. Another thing that's wrong. So that, so the, there's a, there, if you pardon the expression, there's a pregnant silence in both of these documents. Now, let me share something else that's misrepresented. Okay. And that is the concept that life begins at conception and that this is based on the Bible is a misconception. The opposite is true in Jewish and Christian scripture. There's no doubt about it. In Genesis 2-7, it says God fashioned, and the word in Hebrew, Yitzah, is what you do like a piece of clay, humans out of the earth, out of the Adama. That's how we got the name Adam. And then he breathed the breath of life into them, and they took on what we call a nefesh hayah. Nefesh means a human being. So what, what does that mean? That means that these people who are saying, oh, life begins at conception. Well, obviously at conception, there is something that's alive. And obviously it has human DNA, but the sperm is alive and the egg is alive and it has DNA. But the question is not, is it alive? Or does it have human DNA? The question is, is it a person? When does it achieve personhood in which the rights of that person then can trump if you're part of the expression, the rights of the mother. In Jewish law, it does not happen until birth. And there's other things in the Bible also. There's Genesis 2-7. There's also Ezekiel in the, in the dry bones. God breathed the breath of life into them and they lived. There's Exodus 21-22, which says that if a man is fighting with another man and he causes the death or the injury of a mother, of a woman, he pays with a fine. If she dies, it's with a life. He pays with his life if he kills her because it says nefesh, achat nefesh. Nefesh is a life for a life. But if she miscarries, then the one responsible pays a fine. Now, it just said a life for a life. But if she loses the fetus, it's a fine. A fine is a damage that you pay for injuring a body. And Jewish law is replete. Talmud, Torah, Maimonides. It says, a fetus is part of a mother. The, these these fundamentalists who can't even read Hebrew and who have the audacity to tell Jewish people what their Bible means and to distort it, that's just wrong. I want to read a statement we received um, from the office of the Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, we got a statement from his Deputy Press Secretary, Brian Griffin, who said, Our comment on this lawsuit is the same as our comment on any other legal challenges to the pro-life HB5 legislation. Governor DeSantis is pro-life. We believe HB5 will ultimately withstand all legal challenges. The struggle for life is not over. What's your response to that? This is just pure power politics. He's saying we're going to win. He's not saying what's right. He's saying we're going to win. Why? Because he stacks the court? Is that what this is all about? Who has the power? I thought that they cared about someone who, who they called Jesus, who believed not in power, but in love and in tolerance. Pro-life? He's pro-lie. If he was pro-life, he'd support universal health care. He'd get rid of all the assault weapons. He'd protect our planet and fight against climate change. And he wouldn't be forcing women to bring life into an already overcrowded world when they know they're not able to do so. To respect life means to recognize that life is so precious and that bringing life into the world is such an amazing gift. It should only be done out of love and out of free will, not out of coercion enforced by the state. 
Let's add a couple more voices to this conversation. Joining us now is Asifa Qureshi Londis. She's a law professor at the University of Wisconsin Madison, specializing in comparative Islamic and U.S. constitutional law. She's also the interim co executive director of the civil rights organization Muslim Advocates. So, Professor Qureshi Londis, welcome. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. And also joining us is Caroline Mala Corbin. She's a law professor at the University of Miami who specializes in religious freedom and the Constitution. And Professor Corbin, it's great to have you as well. I'm delighted to be here. So, Professor Corbin, can you respond to what we've just heard from Rabbi Silver? Well, the one point I would like to make is that it is ridiculous to claim that only religious beliefs from hierarchical religions with a pope matter. That is absolutely not at all how our religious liberty works in this country. The Constitution protects all religious beliefs, whether it's the beliefs of a hierarchical church, a congregational church, a small independent temple, even if it's your own idiosyncratic religious view, it's protected. As long as it's sincere and it's religious, it's a protected viewpoint. So it doesn't ultimately matter matter whether all of Judaism agrees or not. If there is a group of people for whom abortion is religiously mandated, then that is a religious belief that should be protected by the Constitution. Professor Qureshi Landis, what do you make of what Rabbi Silver's argument is? And I guess you can add in this idea of whether their hierarchical tradition makes an ar- a religious argument more powerful. Um, yeah, so my cousins, the Jews, uh, Jewish community in America, and I have had this conversation many, many times because there's a lot of commonality between Islamic law and Jewish law in that there is no hierarchical pope figure. Um, Islamic law functions as multiple religious scholars interpreting scripture, and uh, they often disagree over the meaning of what they are reading, and so they... they um, specifically say that we're fallible humans as we do this, so therefore we may or may not get this correct. So every interpretation is equally valid, which is what leads to many different schools of thought within Islam. So a Muslim, I call it Islamic religious freedom, a Muslim has the right under Islam to choose which of the schools of thought they follow. Um, And that's been baked in from the very beginning of Islamic history. And so specifically on this question, there's a diversity of opinion on when life begins, very similar to what the rabbi was just talking about. So there, the, the, the first phrase even is very similar to when the life is breathed into the fetus or the zygote um, by the divine. And so the the different interpretation of scripture is that that happens at a different time from zero all the way to 120 days. So the different schools of thought would say before that time, it's not like you're killing a life. So therefore you would look at lots of different circumstances. It's a very case by case basis where under your circumstances, is this okay? It's not a matter of sinning in the sense of murdering someone if it is before the date that the life is breathed into the fetus. So Muslims don't have the same kind of anxiety over this because if you'll find Muslims who say that life begins at conceptions and you have Muslims that say that it begins at 120 days and that's okay. We do that all the time with lots of topics. So we're we're very much in the similar situation as others concerned about the Dobbs decision because under Roe, under a constitutional right to abortion, the right to choose to have an abortion, 
Muslims had the choice of which of those schools of thought to follow. Now, as states start to prohibit abortion, our choice is reduced to zero. And that feels like an infringement on our religious freedom. So we agree with those kinds of arguments. Um, we're con- the, the conversation is, is widespread in the Muslim community as to what to, what to do about this situation. Um, we're just getting our heads around it like most Americans are. Um, and there's a very strong sense that the state should not be involved in controlling that decision for us amongst lots of Muslims in the, in the United States. So, Professor Corbin, from a legal uh, perspective, do you believe there's a legitimate legal argument to be made that abortion bans violate religious freedom as protected in the Constitution? Um, I absolutely believe there are viable arguments. And to be clear, there are two separate claims. There are actually two separate religion clauses in the Constitution. And so one is about religious liberty and one is about separation of church and state. And I think they're both implicated by abortion bans. So the religious liberty, which is protected by the free exercise clause, Religious liberty claims arise when the state passes a law that prevents someone from observing their religious practice. So with abortion bans, in this case, as the rabbi explained, under Jewish law, abortion is often religiously required. And not just when the woman's life is in danger, also when her health might be at risk, also when her mental health might be at risk. And so to have a law that prevents abortion in all these circumstances imposes on a Jewish person's ability to live their life in accordance with their their religious beliefs. So that's the religious liberty violation. There is also the separation between church and state. That's the establishment clause in the Constitution. And in this is violated because what abortion bans do is basically read into the Constitution one theological view of when life begins, i.e. abortion bans assume that life begins at conception and that at conception is the point at which there is a soul and a person. And so there is also a separation of church and state violation. And I think these are both, in theory, viable claims. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. You're listening to The 1A Podcast. And remember, to have your questions answered or just let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back into this conversation with a message from Tamara. I am a Presbyterian in Colorado, and I have to say that I am so tremendously happy that I live in a state that protects my reproductive rights, but at the same time, as a Presbyterian, I wish that abortion were less common. I mean, yes, every life matters, but it should not come at the detriment of the mother. And my religion actually says very little about abortion itself, but does adhere pretty closely to the New Testament and to the teachings of Jesus, and thereby we're told to lift everyone up no matter what. And that's a message that I wish more Christians preached. 
Thank you so much for that message. One listener tweeted, Like other religions in this discussion, Christianity is not a monolith. The Pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church only. Not all denominations are hierarchical, and there is a broad spectrum of interpretations of the Bible and opinions on abortion. So, Professor Corbin, this term the Supreme Court ruled on two cases dealing with religious freedom. One was the Carson v. Macon, and the other was Kennedy v. Bremerton School District. Can you tell us about these cases and and how they relate to the discussion of religious freedom? Yeah, so I think um, the overall relationship is basically um, conservative Christian plaintiffs and principals win. Uh, We see that with the abortion case in Carson versus Macon, uh, Maine is required to provide an education to all Maine children. But the problem in Maine is that there's some areas that are so sparsely populated, it doesn't make, it make sense to have a public school there. So in those cases, Maine provided vouchers for parents to send their kids to a private school that offered a secular education. Um, they limited it to schools with secular education because they didn't want taxpayer money spent on religious indoctrination. Um, and in fact, at one point, the main question with funding of religious schools was whether it violated the Establishment Clause. But in this case, it was actually parents who wanted to send their kids to religious schools who brought a free exercise claim. And they won. The current Supreme Court said that if a state is going to provide money to private secular schools, they also had to provide money to private religious schools. Uh, Otherwise, it would be discrimination against religion, uh, despite the fact that there is an establishment clause. The Supreme Court pretty much acted as though it had no force. So in the first case, it said the government must pay for private religious education, needless to say, all the religious schools were Christian schools, if it were to pay for private secular education. So just a a reminder for listeners, the Establishment Clause we keep referring to was mostly authored by James Madison. It's part of the First Amendment. It says that the U.S. government will make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Um, I I wonder, Professor Corbin, let's imagine that the, the lawsuit brought by Rabbi Silver's congregation makes it all the way from Florida to the Supreme Court. What insight do you have about how the court would come down, especially given its current makeup? Um, uh, Unfortunately, I think the prognosis is not good. Um, For the Establishment Clause claim, the claim involving the separation of church and state, the Supreme Court has actually already addressed a challenge to abortion regulations brought under that claim. So back in 1980, when Congress first declared that Medicaid would not fund abortion, there was a both a religious liberty and an establishment clause claim challenging it. The court didn't reach the religious liberty claim, but as to the establishment, the separation of church and state claim, they said just because a law happens to coincide with religious beliefs, that did not necessarily mean it was a religious law. And they argued just because a law against stealing happens to coincide with Judeo-Christian prohibitions against stealing, 
that doesn't convert a law against stealing into a religious law that would violate separation of church and state. And they argued abortion regulations were the same. So they would uh, reject out of hand the separation of church and state claim. Um, And frankly, they have so remade Establishment Clause law that they probably wouldn't even bother with that analysis. The religious liberty claim is a harder call because there's, there's one path to victory, but there are lots of different ways that they might lose. So the Supreme Court may pull the same maneuver it did the first time it was faced with the religious liberty challenge to abortion law and simply sidestep the whole question and say, as a procedural matter, these people don't have standing to bring the law. So they might just avoid the question entirely. Um, They might also say the religious belief is not sincere or it's not truly religious or it doesn't actually impose a substantial burden. Or they might say, even if you do have a religious belief that's infringed, it doesn't matter because this law doesn't target religion. And so there is existing law that says, unless a law targets religion, it doesn't matter if it creates religious burdens. Mm. So they might say a ban on abortion doesn't target religion, and so it doesn't even trigger our concern. Or they might say, yes, this is a religious problem for certain religious groups, but the state's interest on the other side is so compelling that nonetheless the state may regulate. Because in all these cases, if the state has a compelling interest to support its law, it still wins Mm. even if there is some burden on religion. So let me bring this down to the state level with you, Professor Qureshi Laundis. Um, You're the interim co-director of the civil rights organization Muslim Advocates. You are a legal scholar and a Wisconsin resident where the courts are right now um, discussing access to abortion and reproductive rights. What kind of conversations are you having in your faith community about abortion rights and religious freedoms? Well, we're having the conversation that all Americans are having. Um, We're also concerned about what the Dobbs opinion might mean for other civil rights because the language was very... um, There was a direction of other substantive due process. That's a legal term, but anything that's not listed in the Constitution as a specifically enumerated right and a listed right, it could be um, rethought. So that's um, the right to raise your children as you want and and, uh, marrying regardless of race or or gender. So um, there's lots of things that the Dobbs opinion could mean that we're trying to get our heads around. What I kept thinking as I was hearing Professor Corbin talk was that I'm noticing in the population and even among my students a, a, a sense of being let down by the court, the feeling that the court is way more politicized than we thought it was or should be. And to me, what that does is it it leaves us, it kicks a lot of this right into the states and forces us to have this fight um, as citizens about what the laws are going to look like. Um, and many feeling concerned that the, the court isn't going to step in and protect minorities in the way that it has in the past. And so that feels very scary. But as the rabbi said, you know, dark moments might mean opportunities. 
it, it occurs to me that this may be an opportunity for us to really collectively think about what American secularism really is, as opposed to fighting out, making the laws in our own image, but having a conversation about what is the good of society. You know, in Islam, the Islamic history, there's a distinction. Everyone says, what does Islam say about abortion? And I usually start the conversation by saying, well, there's a difference between what Islam says about abortion and what Islam says the state should punish. And those are very different things. So all the rules I gave you about the different schools of thought, those are what Muslims look to to decide how we live our own lives. But that does not mean what the state should impose. So, for example, under Muslim rule for centuries, Christians had the right to have wine at communion, even though Muslims don't drink wine. So there is a strong distinction. And the basis for that distinction is the state should be making laws based on what is in the general or public good. So I really want this to be a moment where the society says, hey, what's in the general good of everybody? Not just what do I think about this topic, but what serves everyone? And I think when we look at that, you can see lots of harm that is are, is going to come out of straight-up abortion bans, from more fetal and maternal death to disproportionate impact on the marginalized to uh, overburdening an already burdened foster care system. There's lots and lots of things. So I think I, I just want that to be the conversation so that the laws don't get made in the first place so that we don't have to rely on the court to save us. Um, you're not the only person uh, worried about a slippery slope. Jan emails this. I'm in my 70s. The right to privacy and to control my body concern me at the other end of life, the right to die with dignity. I fear the Supreme Court's overtly fundamentalist Christian interpretations of the Constitution will adversely impact the right to die movement as well. I, I wanted to ask you about some of the rhetoric that's bouncing around right now, because there are people looking to these decisions and saying that the United States is headed for Sharia law. Um, clearly, there are a lot of Americans who don't understand what Sharia law is. Could you respond to this comparison? Well, it's insulting and it's ignorant. Um, first of all, the, this law, these kinds of laws, these abortion bans, as the rabbi just said, are clearly motivated by a particular strain within Christianity and a politicized Christianity at that. It has nothing to do with Muslims, has nothing to do with Sharia. It it really pains me that Sharia has become shorthand for like bad thing <laughs> or repressive law. Um, and that just means that people don't know, they're, they don't know much about Sharia. They're looking at current laws in Muslim-majority countries and assuming that that is a representation of, of Sharia. So, um, you know, at the end of the show, I don't have time to go into my entire semester-long class, <laughs> but if you look at Sharia historically and actually how Muslims practice, go talk to a Muslim, ask them what they think about Sharia. Like I said, to me, the fundamental question right now that we need to remember is that Muslims make a distinction, have always historically made a distinction between the laws that we practice in our own lives and the laws that we think the state should impose on others. And that's a fundamental distinction from the very earliest times of Islam. Um, and you don't need reform or anything to get to there. That's an early, early position. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's insulting when I see these like Taliban references or, you know, the, the Taliban court or something like that. It just means you don't know anything about Islam and you're using it as shorthand for bad thing. And that's dangerous. It leads to more hate crimes against Muslims, Islamophobia, all kinds of bad things that we've seen from, from an immigration ban from President Trump to, uh, you know, violence against Muslims yeah. because you misunderstand what we're about and violence against those who are perceived to be Muslim who aren't even Muslim. One of the first horrible murders uh, um, after 9-11 was of a Sikh gentleman in Wisconsin in my state. So this is just very, very dangerous ignorance. 
That was Asifa Qureshi Londish. She's a law professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, specializing in comparative Islamic and U.S. constitutional law. We also spoke to Caroline Mala Corbin. She's a law professor at the University of Miami, who specializes in religious freedom and the Constitution. And Rabbi Barry Silver of Congregation Lador Vador in Boynton Beach, Florida. He's also an attorney and a former Democratic member of the Florida House of Representatives. Thanks so much to all three of you. Today's producer was Catherine Fink. And this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. One